Hello again, and you're listening to Lunk Communique number 8. It is January 17th, 2008. Nine. 2009. <laughs> Do you want to just start this over again, Jackson? It's 2009. We'll keep going this time. My name is Jackson Meredith, and I am joined again by... Monty. Andrew. Steve. In a couple of days, it's going to be Martin Luther King Jr. Day, which is, of course, the federal holiday for the last 20, 25 years. Yeah, I mean, obviously, I think, I mean, everybody in this country knows who he is, I think. But most, you know, when you sort of think of Martin Luther King, I mean, you you just think about that sort of that pretty face on the postage stamp or that, you know, the I have a dream speech. Mm -hmm. You know, they sort of teach it, they sort of show us that in school and it's Mm -hmm. kind of pleasant but vague. Mm -hmm. It's a feel good sort of thing. Where he's supposed to be this sort of this great guy who's sort of up on a pedestal, but we don't really dig that deep into who he is. Mm-hmm. And we certainly don't look that closely at certainly the sort of the stuff he was talking about in the last couple of years of his life. Mm-hmm. Where he, he spoke very powerfully about resistance to war, to empire, mm-hmm. and was you know moving beyond even beyond the era of civil rights into you know art you know trying to organize poor people and workers and so forth. And mm-hmm. we we brought you on here today, Steve, mm-hmm. because. Uh, mm-hmm. Well, you're sort of the resident Martin Luther King buff, so you I'm also the resident geezer. So <laughs> well, Jackson, geezer. would you like to properly introduce Steve for the audience because he's our first special guest? We do have a special guest today. I don't. I didn't really have an introduction planned. I don't know if you want to just talk about where you're coming from just a little bit. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. Uh, I grew up in Detroit, Michigan, in the early '60s when it was still illegal for blacks to go to our local pool because it was whites only, in Detroit, in the North. People don't realize this. And uh, in 1963, Martin Luther King came to Detroit and spoke at Tiger Stadium to over 50,000 people, speaking of uh, our common humanity, brotherhood of all Were you you there at Tiger Stadium that day? I wasn't at the... No, no, I wasn't. But my father was a fan of his, and he would take us out on drives through the really poor parts of Detroit where there were neighborhoods where the the blacks had very few housing choices in Detroit at the time and you'd go down these rows of literally shacks terrible, terrible housing conditions and yet in front of most every house was a brand new Cadillac so they were working at the auto plants making big money but they weren't allowed to live anywhere else but these ghettos and so there was just a kind of a seething rage that was building up. I remember my Presbyterian minister at our church was pleading with the congregation to welcome blacks into our neighborhood as brothers, and with tears rolling down his face, he, and uh, that we're all brothers, and he was fired by the congregation that week. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, it's really interesting because there's a documentary about Omaha in the same time period. And in, the, in, in Omaha, in North Omaha, the same thing was happening where the, the minister was trying to bring black families and white families together just to talk, mm-hmm. just to talk. And that was so revolutionary that the congregation fired the minister. <laughs> and so it's, it was a time of great, uh, more overt racism. But after Martin Luther King came to Detroit, the Detroit City Council voted to make all all the or somebody in Detroit anyway made made all pools open to everybody. 
So my father took me to this pool that had just been open to blacks, and he was just kind of, you know, trying to show, you know, we're whites that won't avoid a pool where, where blacks go. So I was, this was the first time I had been in a pool. I was like 12 or 13 years old, and so I was walking out toward the deep end, and it kept getting deeper and deeper, and it was at my chin, and I had no idea how to swim. And I thought, well, I'll take one more step. And it was just in my chin. And I didn't realize, I didn't know that pools drop off oh. the deep end. <laughs> and I went hurtling down into the water and I was literally drowning. I was beginning to lose consciousness. I, I was just thrashing and I grabbed somebody's foot and I pulled myself up on this body, you know, clinging like crazy. And here it was, a black man that had just, <laughs> wouldn't have been there even a few weeks earlier. And so I was kind of baptized in being there for each other, being, being our brothers in this world. And, you know, we, we don't realize how much we lose by preventing people from reaching their potential of who they could be if they had good education, good nutrition. And so our world could be so much better if we did have, a, a, you know, the kind of respect for all people uh, that Martin Luther King was speaking about. So I, I've tried to follow his teachings as much as I can my whole life because, yeah, I really feel like he, his contribution was so great to this country and to the world. And what would be yeah. some of these teachings then that you bring up? I I agree with you as you spoke earlier about how his later writings got deeper and deeper and more relevant to the 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 human situation and the book that I read that really moved me was where do we go from here community or chaos and he wrote this in 1967 this was something that came it was his wrote. last book yeah it was his last book and it was his most far reaching book and and it was about the three critical problems in America, militarism, racism, and poverty, and how we need to reorient our priorities to really work to, to fight these terrible maladies of humanity. And, and those are some of the messages that seem to get left out of the celebrations of Martin Luther King that I think are, are the most important contributions he made and that we still need to be working on and, uh, yeah, the militarism is, is obvious to everyone. And I don't know what you guys feel about the militarism in this country. What are your thinking? Well, about I was just going to say that our society seems to preach this sort of respect for Martin Luther King. But when it comes down to where he went eventually and what you're talking about, being against militarism, uh, poverty, and racism, they're only getting one out of the three. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think that says a and lot. And which one? Well, then the, barely the, the racism, yeah. racism, yeah. and even and that's rather yeah, superficial, yeah, yeah, right? Right. I mean, there's, I mean, there's a lot of people who will just go, "Yeah, it's a good thing he fought against segregation, and now racism is over." Yeah, it's, yeah. It's, I don't remember. <laughs> yeah, we were at a seminar a few months ago. Andrew and I were, and um, there's one of the great sort of critics of how messed up our education system is. I couldn't quote the book or the author, unfortunately. But there was sort of an interesting statement in that way where if, where you wanted to find the most segregated and racist high schools in America today, you start to look for the ones named after Martin Luther King. Yeah. <laughs> in that book, he talked about yeah how 
highways were being built. You know, it was the age of urban removal. It's, it was called urban renewal, but it was just removing blacks and building highways through older parts of the cities and just tearing apart neighborhoods. In the case of North Omaha, they were doing the same thing. After he was shot, they wanted to name the North Omaha Freeway the Martin Luther King Highway. And he talked about in the book, when he was still alive, about how he, the, the whites just drive, rush past, the, and see, and kind of put blinders on to the poverty in, in, their, in their community. It's been said that the highway system in Omaha is built in such a way that it actually sort of bypasses the poorest, blackest parts of the city. It's sort of practically out of sight. Well, it cuts through at the North Omaha Freeway, cuts right through the heart of it. And there was some opposition to it because it did kind of split the neighborhood in half uh, along 30th Street. But they were gonna. They were trying to name that highway the Martin Luther King Freeway, North Omaha, and the, and the community said, "No, we we love Martin Luther King, but we don't want to have these highways that just rush past the poverty and ignore it." Uh, named after Martin Luther. King. I would say that's a common theme: naming something, yeah, after or or a process after something that completely goes against what's going on there. Like naming something after Martin Luther King that sort of tries to hide poverty, mm-hmm. tries to hide uh, deg- degradation of people in a neighborhood, or naming an, an anti-pollution bill... Um, the Clean Skies the Clean Act. Skies yeah, Act. yeah, that's right. I mean, there's, there's a certain sort of policy to that. Is this mm-hmm. is this part of a bigger trend in hollowing out Martin Luther King's politics and reducing him to a, a figurehead on a mantle, on a pedestal, of sort of yeah. re- reducing him to a good black man that we that we bow in reverence to once a year before we resume our our no, normal racist status quo. Yes, I think that's a big part of it, and uh, uh, and then the poverty thing that that is going to get worse and worse. I'm afraid. Although I, you know, who, what do you think about Obama's potential for doing something about poverty? How, what do people feel about that? I, I just am recalling I saw the other day on the internet a shirt that had Obama and it said racism is over. Oh, <laughs> really? Yeah. I, I don't know that it was perhaps a joke. Yeah. It's, it's kind of funny. I've been seeing a lot of commercials on TV for this kind of uh, commemorative merchandise. Like they have these... You know, like these, you know, hand-painted dinner plates or whatever with Obama's big smiling face on them. And it's, it's a commemorative piece. It's like a piece mm-hmm. of, a piece of history. Own a piece of history. Mm-hmm. And it's got yeah. like this, this lily white suburban family all sort of smiling and just, just sort of smiling over their new acquisition. It's just, I mean, what kind of message is that sending? <laughs> Montel Williams was selling coins, I saw on TV. He was selling Obama coins. Obama coins. Oh, yes, yeah, yeah. The brand Obama, that's what <laughs> they're talking about. And as Noam Chomsky was talking about, too, about how, it, yeah, it was brand Obama against brand McCain. And, mm. and they actually had awards. The advertising agency that won the election for Obama won this big you know, advertising awards. So it was, it was largely, yeah, advertising campaign. I think Obama had greater potential when he, before he had started making the appointments that he's made. I mean, like there, there's a, there's a really great leader in Oakland, California now, Van Jones, who wrote a book, Green for All, I think. 
and he's trying to build a movement to put low-income people to work with uh, in making homes and buildings energy efficient and and building the windmills and solar farms that we we need to get off our addiction to oil and Van Jones had been on some lists for even being vice presidential candidate. I mean, he's he's that good and that bright. But um, for for the Democratic Party, yeah, yeah. At at one point, there was the opportunity to appoint some really good people to try to make things happen in this country. But most of the appointments are a disaster. You know, it's beginning with his main appointee. Who's the guy from Chicago? The Rom or Rahm Emanuel. Rahm Emanuel, yeah. He's an investment banker that's a big war hawk. And so it's, it's he's funny the corporate be... the corporate media's nickname for him. They think he's a tough guy and they, they sort of kind of proudly project that his nickname is Rombo. Yeah. Rombo. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but he's one of those investment bankers that has stripped our economy <laughs> and destroyed it and and yet now that we're celebrating that He's one of the people that's going to lead the way to spend the next $350 billion of our money to rebuild the financial institutions that wrecked the economy. Disheartening to see that. Well, while we're on Obama here, I mean, he's going to have his, cor- he's going to have his inauguration, his, his coronation in a couple of days here. And he's surely going to go out there on his podium in Washington and he's going to hearken, you know, the the pantheon of mainstream heroes of anti-racism. He's going to conjure Martin. He's going to conjure yeah, Abraham Lincoln, yeah. and he's going to conjure Martin Luther mm-hmm. King. And you know, certainly there, are, you know, the, the pundits in the media are probably going to say, you know, here, forty-five, forty-six years after I have a dream, maybe maybe Martin Luther King's dream has been realized in the election of a black. President, mm-hmm. what would you say to that? <laughs> Part of the dream is there, and yet the three monsters that we need to deal with—the militarism, the, the racism, and the poverty—are still here. And uh, so, yes, we need to keep struggling to make an imp- have an impact on on making sure that those parts of the dream are still being struggled for and that the people are getting organized to deal with those kind of issues. But yeah, Obama wants to build, thinks that the military needs to be built up more. And so yeah, I, th- I think that's a tragic when we already spend more than all the other countries in the world on, on military and wars. And Martin Luther uh, King certainly wouldn't think very highly of that. Well, you don't become no. president by doing anything other than becoming a servant to the the system that is in place and the ruling class and corporations. And you don't you don't get anywhere if you don't conform to that system. Mm-hmm. You just don't become president. Do you think Franklin Delano Roosevelt maybe when he was elected he maybe wasn't where he was at? in the end or where he led where he created a lot of programs that did kind of make our our society more just but yeah i think he was from the ruling class but then i think maybe in the 30s when our our economy was collapsing he was forced by the the movement of people the councils of the unemployed organized to 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 protest and and uh, and the challenge 
the system and 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 at the time there was yeah the threat of Soviet uh, power uh, building supposedly in the, in Asia but yeah so you don't think any any presidents have well yeah what what, well, what do you think of the well I mean while, while we're talking to make a difference you know while we're you know t- you're talking about you know Franklin Roosevelt and the New Deal yeah you know being I mean in large part being shaped you know by the by the councils of the unemployed yeah, and by yeah. I mean, sort of popular struggles are. I mean, another example you look at, I mean, you know, Michael Moore has sort of famously called Richard Nixon our last liberal president. Hmm. Yeah, because there's some truth to I mean, really, you know, OSHA, the Occupational Safety and Hazards mm-hmm, Act, mm-hmm. basically a key workplace safety legislation yeah. in this country signed by Nixon. Clean Water Act, Clean Air Act, mm-hmm. the last really serious environmental regulations we had in this country. Yeah, the Environmental about, Protection Agency was created under him. And that's all. That was all signed into law by yeah. Nixon. The Community Development Block Grant, which is a great program uh, that uh, really is targeted to low and low and moderate income yeah. communities, and empowers people in communities to decide where federal dollars are spent. Now, obviously, the thing but. is, <laughs> anyone who's anyone who's examined Richard Nixon's political thought for ten minutes knows <laughs> that he was the, about the furthest thing from a liberal imaginable. The point is, in the early 1970s, when he was, you know, at the helm, he had millions of people in organized struggles, anti-war mm-hmm, people, mm-hmm. you know, civil rights civil people, rights, yeah. women's rights people, mm-hmm. in, you know, the beginnings of the environmental movement. They were organized, they were strong, and they lit a fire under his ass. Mm-hmm. He moved their way or he was going to be burned. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Things like the stuff he did and things like the New Deal, they're sort of created to keep that fire down and keep it under control like it's it's always going to be there yeah but the ruling powers figure that well we have to d- we have to create this pacification among mm-hmm. the people so that they don't get too mm-hmm. agitated you know mm-hmm. give give them enough so that they think that all of their fighting is actually amounting to something but still keep the reins mm-hmm. we still have we have to all have to keep the power mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. they don't get too you know you got to let them have a taste of the carrot every once in a while. <laughs> yeah. Because it perpetuates the illusion that, hey, the system works. It, it can work if mm-hmm. you just work really hard and mm-hmm. you sort of fight for your causes and, you know, we can get stuff done. And we, we, don't, have, we don't have to completely change everything. It, uh, we don't have to dismantle the entire socioeconomic system of the world and just completely, totally rebuild it. You know, we can work within what we have and, you know, we can do this and that. I mean... What is consistent about all of those things is that the ruling class is still there in power, and and as long as as long as they have that power, I think they're pretty satisfied with letting us do whatever we want, as long as we don't overthrow them, of course. Mm-hmm. You know, another sort of great book that's sort of in the vein of what we're talking about here would be Howard Zinn's A People's History of the mm-hmm. United States, mm-hmm. and one of the biggest villains in his book in the 20th century is Theodore Roosevelt. Oh, yes. Theodore Roosevelt, obviously, if you've taken your 20th century U.S. history course in high school, he's regarded as a big hero, and he's generally lumped in with that so-called progressive movement of the mm-hmm. early 20th century Howard Zinn quotes him in a People's History, basically, you know, in meetings with, you know, with robber barons, basically, with, mm-hmm. with what we used to call them in more honest times. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the big capitalists who, who own this country, they're the robber barons. And Zinn is quoting him, t- talking to these, these robber barons, and he says, you know, guys, we have a great system here. You know, we have all the money, we have all the power, 
But the people out there, they are pissed off. <laughs> they are they are dangerous. Yeah. You guys have to be smart if you want to maintain this power in the long term. You have to throw some table scraps at mm-hmm. these people, or they're going to come for us with torches and pitchforks, and mm-hmm. it'll be game over. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Not to say that you know the New Deal or uh, Richard Nixon's environmental, all his stuff, wasn't good. It's just people regard those things without... Oh my God! Without the proper context, <laughs> that's uh, Monty's catchphrase. I keep, I keep, I keep, I it's keep his favorite word. It, well, like, I, it keeps, I keep bringing it up for some reason, even though I'm purposely trying to avoid it. But really, that seems to be what's happening. Which is, mm-hmm. it was pretty good. I mean, it, it, mm-hmm. it, it helped a lot of people, got a lot of stuff done, and it was mm-hmm. incredibly helpful. But people forget the well, bigger picture. They're trying to well, repeal it to this day. Mm-hmm. Well, and how much work it takes to make things happen for the people. You, we should talk about Bolivia and Venezuela. And you brought them up, get going. Yeah. Go for it. Well, yeah, the, the people in Bolivia just got pissed off. The national corporations were telling them that now that the multinational corporations own their water and they had to start paying for the Bolivian water to these multinational corporations. And that... Those kind of things uh, get, get get people riled up when they can't have water unless they pay these multinational corporations. So yeah, they they got organized, and uh, an indigenous uh, leader uh, is now the president of, of Bolivia. And there, and where else is democracy taking place now? I'm trying to remember that, that there's some real democracy in other parts of the world. I heard Primarily in Latin America. That's yeah, really yeah. the exciting I only, place. I can only think of Latin America, really, yeah. off the top of my head. Yeah, we can learn a lot from their struggles, I think. Uh, well, that's, kind of a, that's kind of a whole show there. <laughs> that's another show entirely. We'll be sure Martin, to have <laughs> Martin Luther King! Yes, yeah, I'm about to get back to Well, certainly. King. We'll bring you back for the Hugo <laughs> Chavez show. You know, <laughs> okay. I know that's an issue that's near and dear to your heart, too. Yeah. But Martin Luther King uh, was under constant threat from the FBI. There's a good book called Martin Luther King and the FBI that, through the Freedom of Information Act, exposes constant harassment he was under. And, and the fact that and they were FBI agents were actually threatening his life in that letters written as some kind of, uh, to be sound like some kind of poop, but they were they were known to be FBI agents threatening his life right up to mm-hmm. the end. And tr- I mean, trying to, trying to smear and, uh, his moral fiber by right, trying to yeah. invent extramarital affairs and things of that nature, too. They didn't have to invent them, but... <laughs> I mean, they went digging but, for them. Yeah, was... they, they, they found them, but... But still, you know, he was being spied on constantly, you know, and, and uh, wiretapped and everything else. And so that's an area where we need to really struggle to try to protect our rights to privacy. Although it's getting tougher and tougher with the Internet. I mean, everything is interconnected and linked. And so I was watching a show talking about judgments and whether these institutions, the CIA, the FBI really have to abide by any sort of judicial or any other authority. And these organizations, obviously, they're, they're going after the Black Panthers, they're going after mm-hmm. the American Indian Movement, mm-hmm. they're going after mm-hmm. these icons, Martin Luther King, Malcolm X. They're, they, just, mm-hmm. they just attack these groups. Mm-hmm. We do need to back up just a little bit here. I mean, we're talking about you know the, the Civil Rights Movement and the FBI reaction to it. Mm-hmm. And you really can't have this discussion without using the word 
COINTELPRO. Yeah. Right. yeah. The, the FBI's counterintelligence mm-hmm. program, mm-hmm. you know, which under Cold Warrior extraordinaire J. Edgar Hoover was just all about destroying, mm-hmm. I mean, destroying black people's movements, yeah, destroying uh, the American mm-hmm. Indian movement, mm-hmm. trying to destroy and, and leftist groups, trying violence. to destroy Students yeah. for a Democratic Society, trying to mm-hmm. destroy the Socialist Workers Party. Mm-hmm. And really, the only, I think the only reason we even, the COINTELPRO even got exposed and vilified is because when, when Nixon came to the reins, he tried to use that infrastructure to destroy the Democratic Party. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. obviously... When you have power and you try to crush people without power, that's business as usual in this country. Mm-hmm. When you have power and you try to take away the power of another group with power mm-hmm. in this country, you know, that goes against the thieves' code there, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Well, and we're talking about programs here that are used in that way. Let's talk about the, the war on drugs, mm-hmm. which you can see people quoted as saying it's just an excuse to attack the movements at the time, attack the hippies and the and the movements that were associated with drug culture, that were sort of that mm-hmm. that new uprising, mm-hmm. just reasons to arrest people. And that goes all the way through to the present day and sort of brings us back to our civil rights topic for the day. The war on drugs in this country now is in large part an excuse to jail young black men. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I mean, you want to compare the double standard yes, yeah. between criminal penalties for being caught in possession of powder cocaine, which is a mm-hmm. white, you know, a white man's suburban drug, mm-hmm. and its cousin, crack cocaine, mm-hmm. which is primarily, at least according to the propaganda by the black guys in the ghetto, mm-hmm. powder cocaine, it's a fine. Mm-hmm. And obviously, if you can afford to buy cocaine, you can probably afford the fine. Mm-hmm. You get caught with crack, you go to prison. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Well, talking about these standards, I remember we went to the talk Angela Davis gave, mm-hmm. and she said that that capital punishment exists because of of uh, slavery in this country. Do you remember that, Jackson? I may not have been there for that. That doesn't sound familiar. But she was saying that that basically capital punishment is a is a vestige of slavery because capital punishment was retribution uh, to slaves and that they had basically abolished it. The slaves were freed and it was a policy that continued that way. And I guess, you know, you make it a little bit more egalitarian and then you can kill everyone. <laughs> That's kind of the basic idea there. Hmm. Yeah, we are the most in- incarcerated country in the world, you know, by far. And so, yeah, that's... A, the drug war needs to be scaled back because, yeah, these... In many cases, there are nonviolent offenders that are spending much of their lives in prison uh, that for using marijuana or whatever. And that's a real tragedy because, yeah, the, again, Martin Luther King believed that people should have the opportunity to reach their full potential, and I think... So many lives are being destroyed by the prison industrial complex as well that we here in Lincoln, you know my job was eliminated in community development so they could have more money to build jails and prisons for people who are not fitting in the communities i mean it's a oddly enough one last society. point on the drug war, which obviously sort of ties into this sort of prison overpopulation issue i mean actually oddly oddly enough in Nebraska. 
draconian as this state is, marijuana possession is a ticket offense. I don't know, forget what the specific, it's a citation, it's not a, mm-hmm. it's not an arrest. Mm-hmm. But there's actually a, a state senator who's talking about wanting to increase the criminalization of marijuana in this mm-hmm. state, but precisely at this time, we're having trouble paying for the prisons we have and yes, looking at building right, more. That's right, yeah. The drug war continues full steam ahead. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, we have all these massive social problems, and the great evil is people smoking weed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, to side to get this to end this sort of drug war thing and try to tie it back, we are at the halfway point of our show already, and we were talking. At least we started this conversation on Martin Luther King and the civil rights movement and racism. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And of course, we've been wandering every which way with it <laughs> since then. Well, yes, in uh, 1983, I, I joined some fellow Nebraskans in, on a van to go to drive. We drove to Washington, D.C. for the 20th anniversary of I Have the Dream speech. People like Leela Shanks and her husband. Her husband was still alive then. Krejci's John and Jean Krejci, a former priest and nuns. And a bunch of other people went in two vans. And it, it was a great experience uh, out on the Lincoln Mall reliving those days and I can't remember all the speakers but it's hard to find somebody who could speak better than Martin Luther King that's part of the problem and I think that was why he was considered so dangerous because even here in in Nebraska you know we used there was a statue of William Jennings Bryan on the North Capitol steps from 1947 to 1967 you have to back up a second it's it's very possible that most of our listeners, all three of them, <laughs> don't know who William Jennings Bryan is. William Jennings Bryan was the candidate that the populist movement in 1896 chose as their presidential candidate. And he was from here in Nebraska. And he was from Lincoln, Nebraska. He was very much anti-war. And when he was Secretary of State under Woodrow Wilson... He resigned as Secretary of State because Wilson got us into World War One. He said, this is not a, not a good war, we shouldn't be doing this. And so he resigned his post and he said, we, you know, as Secretary of State. And uh, so he, he was a symbol for, for, he was also a symbol for his anti-evolution work, which is too bad because he, he was a multi-dimensional figure and he was generally a very progressive Christian that really believed in uh, justice and peace and things like that. So he was helping build the coalitions with the populace to reduce corporate power. He spoke very uh, passionately to restrict the rights of personhood for corporations. He said that that was a huge mistake, that we should have more control over corporations, private corporations in the United States. And so... Again, he was chosen as the leader of the populist movement, but because of his anti-war, partly a big part of... And, he was, and yet he was noteworthy enough to get a statue on the Capitol up until the 1960s. Right. And even in the U.S. Capitol, even though he was only in Congress for four years, he has one of the biggest statues inside the U.S. Capitol because he was just such a powerful speaker and people would listen to him for hours at a time and he had just an incredible voice. There was there were jokes that he could be heard speaking at the state fairgrounds all the way downtown <laughs> without amplification. That might have been an ex- exaggeration, but he had incredible speaking powers, not only in volume but in longevity. And, and uh, so, yeah, he was an amazing 
character. You want to but, fast forward back to the statue. But of the getting Capitol. back to 1967, a fascinating thing happened. Uh, there had been some efforts to remove the statue from the north steps of the Capitol, but the people who had put it there had this vision of having William Jennings Bryan on one end of the mall, and then where the State Historical Society was, they were going to have General Pershing, who was one of the great imperialist generals who went around you know, chasing after uh, uh, the populations in the Philippines, in Mexico. Anyway, but in 1967... Was yeah, Pershing was also from Lincoln. Uh, a couple yeah, of I great historical to, figures but there. I went, to, I went to the elementary school named after Oh, Pershing. <laughs> so you can tell how absolutely proud I am. I mean, obviously, I mean, I think everyone in town has been to Pershing Auditorium, too. But yeah, go, go yeah. back to Pershing versus... But the fascinating Ryan. thing that happened in 1967, two weeks after Martin Luther King came out against the Vietnam War, saying that it was an immoral war and he was going to use every ounce of his energy to fight this war and to end this war in Vietnam. It was taking away resources from rebuilding our cities, from education for the poor, and jobs for the poor and and again our the young blacks were being drafted and sent to Vietnam as cannon fodder and black people killing yellow people for the profits of white people that sounds a little more like Malcolm X yeah there. it really does this statue was right on the north steps of the capitol then two weeks after he came out against the war and there was started this grumbling about maybe there's going to be a movement against the Vietnam War the white senators that were running this state at the time in 1967 voted to move that statue off the North Capitol steps and hide it over by Fairview, where his house now stands, right next to the house that he lived on at about 48th and, I don't know what, Sewell, 48th and Sewell. Mm. It's really interesting, just out of the blue, it wasn't even on the radar in the, in the state uh, legislature, in the unicameral, but... When Martin Luther King started saying that war is a moral issue, we should not be, be in, in war in Vietnam, it sparked a movement to take this symbol of an anti-war leader off the north steps of the Capitol. So it's, it's amazing how history fits together. You, you know, you might have different ideas on this, but I, I found the timing to be just so amazing. Since I studied Martin Luther King and... William Jennings Bryan quite a bit because I believe their anti-war stands were just so critical to the future of humanity. We've got to get past war because we're just spending all of our resources on war and we don't have the resources to do the things that we need to build a better community globally and throughout the world. I think that's a link that we need to be conscious of. And one of the Unitarian ministers here in Lincoln even uh, he had been against World War One, and so the congregation fired him because he was against World War One. And then they rehired him later when the war was over. They rehired him, and he wrote a sermon in the in the late 1930s, saying how even though William Jennings Bryan was a wacko because of his beliefs in against uh, evolution, that he was a great global citizen because he believed in, in resisting war and moving humanity beyond war. And so uh, the whole legacy of Martin Luther King in terms of nonviolent change, I think we need to learn from him because he learned also from Gandhi and from William Jennings Bryan before him. We need to build a movement to make 
violence unnecessary. And I don't know if it's ever going to happen, but uh, what do you think of the, the potential for nonviolent change in this country? I mean, I guess maybe not just in this country, but in the world. How can nonviolence, Martin Luther King's lessons of nonviolent change be adopted in, in today's world? I don't believe nonviolence is ever going to work as long as there's violent suppression happening. As long as we are ruled by a group of people who would have absolutely no trouble resorting to fascism to keep any sort of progressive movement down if it gets that extreme, yeah. violence is going to be inevitable. And Probably. Actually, I would, I would just like to say just very quickly, and I'll give it back to you, uh, just a quick quip as far as keep tying it back to civil rights again. I, I mean, I would say probably at least three-fourths of this table is a little closer to Malcolm X's doctrines of self-defense and by any means necessary. And that's exactly what I was going to bring up, is a line that Malcolm X used, which I think illustrates it beautifully. If a man puts a dog on you, you put that dog down. You defend yourself. That's what I believe. I mean, uh, letting yourself get killed will never help anyone. Mm -hmm. The movements, the busing issue, the people got beat up, but then in the long run, the transportation system was open to all races. The lunch counters, people got beaten over the heads and thrown in jail, but in the end, the restaurants are open to everybody. So in, in many other areas, the pools in Detroit, it, you know, uh, I think it is an effective tool. There are pro there may be limitations, but maybe there are limitations because we haven't tried it enough, worked hard enough. It it maybe takes more work than putting a, picking up a gun. And but that's the other thing, you know, like the Black Panthers, they picked up a gun because they believed in that approach, and they will get squashed. So of but, course you have to uh, realize that whether you're violent or non-violent they will pull guns on you if you're successful and they will kill you right right so i guess there there may be a middle path there i'm going to this conversation assuming that we're not talking about like a small underground movement that is sort of using violence whatever to reach their goal because obviously in that case yeah they're going to get crushed mm -hmm. we're, we're talking about a, a mass worldwide movement Mm -hmm. that, that is sort of rising up and attempting to take back the entire planet. Maybe it's my cynicism, but I don't see that happening without basically a war. Mm -hmm. And just because the people who have power in this country, and they're going to send, they're going to send the armies, and they're going to send all the militaries. And mm -hmm. if it comes to that point to actually reconstruct the entire system of, of how the human race operates, there's going to be some pretty extreme conflict in order to get to that point mm -hmm, and I don't mm -hmm. I don't see how that I mean again maybe it's my cynicism but I, I don't see that being not inevitable well look at the Soviet Union uh, the the people rose up against the system and uh, the system backed down I mean and it was really quite relatively nonviolent it really depends well, of course it had the backing of the United States <laughs> Yeah, yeah. The the biggest military power is, but then yeah, they had almost equivalent military power. It really depends on where the ruling class is at the time, is how I see it. Because if they think that they have the power to mm -hmm. to take hold through violent means or anything, they're going to use them. Now, the ruling class never hesitates to use violent means or use the resources at their hands 
Look mm-hmm. at what we're our country is doing in bombing other countries, uh, bombing hospitals, killing civilians, children. There's mm-hmm. nothing they're not willing to do. And I don't think it matters but if that's black, that white, or brown or in, yeah, in this yeah. country or another. If they can get away with it, or if it's their last resort, they'll kill oh, you. sure. Yeah. yeah. It's kind of hard to compare it to sort of the Soviet Union, though, because, I mean, that was a system in decay. That was a political system that had been in decline for decades. I mean, you can, you can argue that this political system yeah, is, well, is in decline. Yeah, well, the economic is system in is in total freefall. Uh, the, the issue is sort of whether political power and obviously all the things that feed into political power have decayed to an, enough to a point where you can just sort of push the exhausted beast over or whether yeah, you know whether yeah. this corporate order is going to push us to the brink of extinction before that iron fist starts to loosen its grip a little bit mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and what do you think answer your own question <laughs> well I'm kind of pessimistic about <laughs> that yeah. people sort of ask me I actually had a conversation with Mark Weddleton mm-hmm. on Wednesday and he asked me uh, as a young person, and I suppose you could probably speak to this too a little bit. He said, you know, when he was when he was young, when he was our age, he thought the world was going to change. Mm-hmm. He thought things were different. I know I've talked to you about back when you were roughly our age. You, you thought there was going to be a revolution by 1975. That was sort of the well, prevailing yeah. idea. Even at the time, in, the, in 1975, there was a survey of industrial leaders and 80% thought that there would be or maybe it was in the 60s the late 60s that there would be a revolution to overthrow the government by by 1975 even the power elite that things were going to break down and obviously sort of optimism isn't terribly existent for people on the left and for radicals we're a generation that's been raised on Reagan Bush, Clinton, mm-hmm. and Bush again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And obviously it's kind yeah. of a dreary state. And I mean, Mark Weddleton was asking me, do you think the world can change? And I, what I told him was, the world will change one way or another. We're going to run ourselves off a cliff and go extinct, or we're going to make some drastic changes before that and save ourselves. Either way... Learn to play. Learn to fly. Fly. Change is coming in this century one way or another. Yeah. But... One way I'd, I'd care not to think about too much. That's my job. <laughs> well, now you bring it back to Martin Luther King. In this book that I spoke of, Community or Chaos, he said we are moving towards a point of where we either adopt nonviolence or non-existence. <laughs> and, and he was re- referring in part to the nuclear weapons that are mm-hmm. built up around the world. And now we have more more countries with nuclear weapons, unstable governments, but... I think his message, non-violence or non-existence, could be the choices that we have. Time is running out. Now the environmental issues are getting more extreme, too, because of the growing demands on the planet. I think there's more awareness of that today, and, and that could be what reigns in this mindless push to militarism and inequality. There needs to be some basic justice uh, in order to make the planet work very well. I don't know. I think I'm maybe I'm getting a little off target, but the environment and demands that we put people to work to reduce energy consumption, pollution that that causes in, in terms of burning fossil fuels, like the book uh, the Van Jones wrote uh, called Green for All. 
Or no, it's called the green the green collar economy. Green That's collar right, economy. the green collar economy. Uh, very good book, and and I think that we need a new mission as humanity, and I think that could also be a hopeful sign that the things are getting desperate enough on the environment that we need to say, hey, you know, war was fun, but you know, we really have some work to do to try to build a different kind of uh, human interaction in the in the global environment, and so. Maybe resources will be redirected towards these green-collar jobs, towards less war over resources that shouldn't be monopolized by the corporate elite. Do you see any sort of breaking point where this realization dawns on people that we need to care about the environment? Well, the corporations have realized it, and they've set up their environmentalist divisions, <laughs> and be- mostly because they can see it. Mostly because yeah. now they can see a profit yeah. in it. But we're now we're seeing green greenwashing is coming yes. into vogue in the last ten, fifteen years. Definitely. Yes, right, right, yeah. Uh-huh. But how much is that superficial, and how much is it a real systemic change? Yeah, that's a good question. Yeah. Well, it's sort of like this article I posted to our our message board at lunkradio.org/phpbb3. You read it too. Talking about this sort of superficial mentality where you spend all the resources to build a building that's going to last 20 years, and mm-hmm. then you say that it's ecologically friendly because you've lined all the fixtures with compact fluorescent light bulbs. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. That article, was, I think, was a very good... I mean, I hope people go there and read it. For our listeners. It's on our message board, Conquering the Divide. Conquering you can, if you, you go can, to our homepage, okay. it's right there. There's an okay. obvious link. And it's, okay. it's, in, it's in one of the forums. I think mm-hmm. it's in... It's in, As in politics. Po- politics. Oh. Yeah, and go read it. I thought it was fantastic. Yeah, yeah. I thought it was a perfect response to this... Because what's popular now is this kind of Al Gore, let's go buy a hybrid and, you know, let's conserve <laughs> energy and... Well, the, the sort of vote with your dollar kind of the author described as consumer we'll side environment one light bulb at a time yeah <laughs> well there's there's two extremes there's yeah. the lifestyleism and then there's the vote with your dollar and the lifestyleism is putting all the responsibility on the regular people they both are. The they're poor people. they're both two sides of why should the working class be responsible for what these corporations are doing to the planet that's kind of why i want to get into charity look at these charity ventures that you have on television asking the working class to take care of the working class they don't have any money so we got less than 10 minutes here so we really don't want to start another show idea (laughs) martin luther king martin luther king he was an awesome guy he was too dangerous i really believe that the powers that be had him killed what about malcolm x Oh, yes, that too, yeah, yeah. And actually, the church hearings in the mid-70s, when they were looking into all these assassinations, they said basically probably all of them were conspiracies, uh, John F. Kennedy, and but we just can't figure them out yet. Well, now, Malcolm I don't know if we're getting any closer. And Martin Luther that. King, they shook hands. They were getting closer together. Right. Maybe I Maybe ideologically. And, um, yeah. Well, they just ran into each other by accident when they shook hands, but... Their ideas were merging. I think Malcolm X was coming from a violent past. His father was killed by the Ku Klux Klan, and and he w- was out on the streets. Malcolm X from Omaha, Nebraska. Yeah, another. Yeah, yeah. we have fertile ground for. Uh, we got a lot of bragging here. rights here yes, in that's Nebraska. Right, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> well, except they were all cut down before they could really reach their full potential, which is kind of interesting. Which kind of makes me wonder about. The things behind their deaths, you know? exactly, exactly. I mean, they, but they then were, there are other heroes like George Norris. He was a uh, Republican senator from out in McCook, and he worked with the 
Roosevelt administration to create the Tennessee Valley Authority, which was a very progressive economic plan to revitalize the Tennessee Valley. Of course, now <laughs> these old coal plants that they built along the, the Tennessee Valley built are now, now they're kind of an environmental mess. They're, they're an environmental mess, but. In the 30s, when there had been floods and all, they, the T Tennessee Valley Authority was created to build hydroelectric dams to prevent flooding and to create electricity for local industries and to create new jobs for the people. He was very much a major part of that. And that's what we need today, that, you know, that kind of vision of investing uh, public, in public infrastructure uh, with the wind energy, solar energy, geothermal and to put people to work building a whole new infrastructure for a new economy. So while we're talking, yes. we're sort of moving it forward to the, the current day again, obviously that you had the big corporate bailout, you know, $700 billion to Wall Street. Do you think those dollars could have been better spent, you know, rebuilding oh, yes. the infrastructure in this country that may have done more for the economy? Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, that should have been just directly into the green economy. But the people didn't seem to want to follow the Green Party path. I don't know. Yeah, it's, it's uh, discouraging. Well, you only got 1% of the vote, <laughs> didn't right. you, Steve? That's right. That's right. I ran for U.S. Senate. You were no match for that pretty boy Democrat. Yeah, and they're millions of dollars. Somehow we got to find a way to build grassroots movements for the power that they have in, in Bolivia and in and Venezuela. But then, yeah, I heard something on the public radio yesterday about the imploding Venezuelan economy. Who's to say that they're imploding any more than us? But you, you just wonder if there's some new signals being sent that maybe the Democrats will be more active in Less active in Iraq, more active in Venezuela. I don't know. What do you guys think about that? That's well, you know, you almost, to worry about. You know, everyone in the corporate media is sort of cheerleading now because the price of oil has fallen like 70% in the yeah, last eight yeah. months as the economy has fallen off a cliff. And it's like, well, hey, now gas is cheap. But, I mean, you almost wonder if there was a sort of a, a shift in the balance of power. And obviously the oil companies were king with the Bush administration. Yes, that's true. And we saw yeah. the price of oil spike because of that sort of treatment yeah, they, they got. Yeah, they unlimited power. You sort of the got the feeling that they maybe the, the pendulum is swinging back the other way now because, I mean, these, these things that, that Chavez was doing in Venezuela were, of course, being funded by the Venezuelan oil industry. Obviously, when the, when the sure. price of oil falls, these Venezuelan social programs are falling. Yeah, that's true. But obviously, thus far, he's been able to sort of maintain these programs. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, education, mm -hmm. health, the kind of things that should be basic human rights. Yeah, it's the, the, the 60th anniversary of the Declaration of Human Rights in the United Nations. And so, yeah, we should celebrate that too, because I think that that's a, also another map to try to create human rights for all, all of humanity. And while we're on Latin America, we just had the 50th anniversary of the Cuban Revolution, too. That's right, that's right. Raul is carrying on. <laughs> we don't have a day for that. No, we don't. <laughs> so, what else about Martin Luther King do we want to Well, I would say? just... There was one other little talking point that I was hoping to sort of get across. I mean, in some ways... In some ways, I think sort of the, the King Day holiday and certainly the way King is remembered in, in mainstream history and in our history classes, in a way, is sort of insulting to the civil rights movement at large because, I mean, they sort of make it out like Martin Luther King was 
the civil rights movement. And you, you sort of touched on this earlier, Steve. He was just the movement's best spokesman. And that's why he led all the big rallies, because he uh-huh. was just a great spokesman. Right, but right. Obviously, he would have been nobody if he didn't have millions of people at his backs in these mm-hmm. marches, mm-hmm. fighting every single day for these mm-hmm. gains that they won. Mm-hmm. And now he's been replaced with Obama, who is a good speaker and is incredibly charismatic, but completely lacks any of the sort of political positions that Martin Luther King had. And this actually brings me back to the the other point that I think went unsaid from several minutes back. There are sort of two perspectives on reform in this country. Obviously, the prevailing one from the rulers and their pet media Mm -hmm. is that reform is something that is handed down to us Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. from the top by benevolent leaders like Barack Obama. Obama's an elite man. He comes from Mm -hmm. the top of the system, ultimately. And the the opposite perspective, obviously, really, that Martin Luther King is more a product of is the people who are oppressed fighting from the bottom up Mm -hmm. with their blood, their sweat, and their tears Mm -hmm. to fight and take what is rightfully theirs. Now, Mm -hmm. if you want to examine that, how it's taught historically, the other figure I'd probably consider... I'm afraid we're going to have to study it in brief because we're down to a minute now. Two of them being extremely large figures, Martin Luther King and uh, Abraham Lincoln. Now, Abraham Lincoln was a figure who handed down freedom, is exactly what you're talking about. The Emancipation Proclamation, which is considered something fantastic, and we kind of talked about that before, it's talked up as something amazing and handed down like that when really... It was a large struggle, and Abraham Lincoln sort of did that out of a, an opportunist sort of thing politically. He was being a politician. Well, what I what I what I get from Obama is that he is he he's all, he's all for the regular people rising up, as long as they are part of groups that are subservient to the Democratic Party. Yeah, hmm. that kind of is my take too. Yeah, that's a good point. Well, you're a special guest here, Steve, and you've brought a lot to the table. So I'm going to give you the last word here, about 45 seconds. Oh gosh. Well, we've got to carry on the banner that Martin Luther King and Malcolm X were were struggling for right up to the end. They were merging together from two distant perspectives. They were coming together to speak in behalf of all humanity and to help build a movement to engage people in building a better world and need to celebrate the day, but yeah, to take on the challenges uh, that Malcolm X was also taking on and there will be opposition there will be we will meet some walls and uh, but yet the people have to continue the struggle power to the people thank you Steve for Steve Andrew and Monty I'm Jackson and we'll catch you next week thank you goodbye <laughs>